Hey, everybody. This episode of Clinic Gym Radio is brought to you by our new communication system, Clinic Gym Connect. Now, I said communication system. It's also a marketing system. It's also a customer service system, and it's also a follow-up system. It's all of those things because it is a communication system, and you can't provide great service, great care, or great marketing without great communication. So the secret here is that we want you to use text message-based communication. It's what people do today. If you're just emailing your patients, if you're adding them to email lists through MailChimp and Gmail and all that, man, I just think you're going to struggle to grow. But we have some solutions built into our system that will help you grow and make this year the best year you've ever had in clinic and hopefully in your gym. So check out clinicgymconnect.com. Again, that's clinicgymconnect.com. Hey, welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Satterley, and I have spent the last 12 years trying to find the perfect model of musculoskeletal healthcare. And I think I found it. I think it's combining chiropractic care with excellent rehab skills and then transitioning those patients into an exercise program at a gym where there's great communication between you and the people running the gym. We call that the clinic gym hybrid model. And over the last two years, we've really been trying to perfect it with the goal of having 100 clinic gym hybrid facilities opening up here in the US. I'm Dr. Josh Satterley and welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of Clinic Gym Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Satterley, and I am joined today by the, the king of exercise up in Toronto, Canada, which is a pretty competitive exercise uh, uh, location, but the king of exercise, Alex Effer. Alex, how are you? I'm good, man. I really appreciate you for having me on. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm excited because you're an exercise physiologist up in Canada. Now, in Canada, you can work with clients in pain, just like your massage, what are they, RMTs, registered massage therapists, can work with clients yeah. in pain. Yeah. Which is a little different than the States, but, and that's kind of where you've really uh, flourished is in that pain or post pain uh, population. Uh, but yeah, I really want to talk about some, some ideas about exercise that people kind of are overlooking when dealing with people in pain or preventing pain or high stakes populations. So those professional athletes, things like that. Yeah. 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 So for me, it's, you know, yeah, as you said, I'm an exercise physiologist in, in Canada, essentially that allows me to work in the rehab setting, but also works, allows me to work with professional athletes. So for mm -hmm. example, exercise physiologists also do like VO2 max testing. They, yeah. they, they, look, they look at uh, lactate threshold and, and stuff like that in order to guide, you know, programming and stuff like that. And, yeah. uh, and so for me, like, honestly, I just kind of, you know, I just kind of went the rehab route, not on purpose, just, I was just working with people and, uh, they started getting out of pain and they started referring other people. And so it's kind of snowballed like that. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I, I sound like a broken record when I say this, but in my experience, if you look at Exos, if you look at uh boil strength conditioning, if you look at your programming, you look at any, but any high end programming, uh, even program design, Eric Cressy, like all these high end people, it is always focused on how do you start at the bottom and go up to exercise? It's never, Hey, we're starting midway. How do we make it harder? Like making exercise harder is super easy. I mean, you can take a yeah. two day CrossFit seminar and you can scale somebody up as long as they don't break as, as far as you want, but getting it down to that realistic level of where that client can, can work is really where the money's to be made. So if you're a young therapist or young exercise coach out there listening Get good at the low level stuff before you worry about like how to, you know, do a split, uh, a split jerk. Like, 
Exactly. That ain't you know, what you're going to see most of the time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great point because I think, um, you know, you, like high level strategies. So the, the analogy that I always give or, or like what I always think about is there's a lot of, um, I guess the word is like not the greatest, you know, trainers and therapists out there. And, you know, and, and because of that, like you, you, like you see, they get results. Right. And so it's easy to make people get strong. A lot of, you know, maybe not as educated people can get people strong and get people fit, which to me is kind of the reason why I didn't go that route, like the aesthetic route. Like it was more like, Hey, what is harder? Harder is getting somebody out of pain and then keeping them out of pain while also training them harder in a progressive manner. And as you said, like the way that I look at it is very like, let's take you from the ground up always. And that's in all my programming, in all my assessing, um, I always try to take somebody from or have it in my mind, what is the worst possible movement um, or like what is the stiffest person out there and how can I build a program model based on that? If yeah, that makes I like sense. it. So one, uh, what I'd love to talk about today a little bit is, is diving into data points to look at as we're programming. Because as you said, when you start off talking about the role of an exercise fizz in Canada, you said like they can do lactate threshold, VO2 max, and all those things are really is data points that we can, um, usable data points that are also, at, we can accurately grab on the gym floor, right? Like yeah. we can record like, uh, intra-articular joint fluid through, you know, contrast CT, but that we just can't grab that on the, on the gym floor. And it really doesn't provide us any information. No. So, but now there are so many things. I was just interviewing somebody the other day from Kabuki, which I know you spoke at the Kabuki education week. Yeah. He was talking about like these, you know, velocity training. So now we can track bar velocity, uh, mm -hmm. very easily for a couple thousand dollars. I work with golfers. We can you know, track uh, kinematic sequence, degrees per second, where they are in space for a few thousand dollars. Yeah. And then as we go down, 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 there's stuff that you can test for five or 10 bucks. You know, mm -hmm. I do power testing with golfers. It's a medicine ball and a measuring tape. Like, come on, that's yeah. damn near available at Lowe's right now. You know, yeah. like <laughs> so what are some data points that you look at when you, when you look at uh, proper programming? Because here, here would be my, I'll just start with this uh, for the listeners. If you're not collecting some sort of data point on the front end, I don't think you're a skilled provider. I'll just make that as a pretty blanket statement. But if you're not looking for data points, you don't know where you're starting and therefore you can't understand how far away from the goal you are. And therefore, I don't think you're that interested in really getting better. Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, data points or assessment or however you want to call it, you know, it's, it is your marker for progression. I mean, I don't pick an exercise, sorry, all my exercises are based on the assessment and based on where people are at. And so, you know, I work with a lot of people who are, you know, who kind of work in the corporate realm, but now ever since COVID, because I am, you know, doing a lot of virtual stuff, I work with people all over the world who are trainers and even therapists and I consult on their clients. And one of the biggest things, as I as I said, is I use assessment to dictate what I'm going to do and what exercise I'm going to select. Um, you know, one of, so I kind of have different types of categories of assessment, depending on the population I'm working with. 
as you said, you know, because the population I work with right now, I don't have, you know, the ability to test VO2 max lactate threshold because that's not really important in that context or in that threshold. If I was working with a professional organization, my assessment model might be a little bit different. Yeah. But in a fundamental standpoint, I'm going to assess how somebody moves uh, both um, actively and passively um, online or virtual. I do stuff actively. And so because of that, I try to keep it even in person active. Yeah. Active. One thing, one thing I think is important for uh, everybody to realize too, is as you're talking, I was remembering when you collect data on the front end, yeah, it's so much easier to impress your client with how good you're. So if you go, Oh, you can only, you know, you can only turn your head 60 degrees. And, you know, after I treated you one time as a chiropractor, now it's 90 degrees. They're like, whoa. Yeah. But if I never established that baseline, they don't know what to compare it to. Exactly. And so I think looking at collecting data and then what are the tools you have right now to collect data? Yeah. Well, do the number of video cameras in our world now is there's got to be a hundred video cameras per person walking the earth. I feel like <laughs> exactly. so being collected via video. Why not? Like that's yeah. super cheap. It's ubiquitous. It's easy to transfer and it. It's still impressive. Yeah. And you know, especially with virtual clients, what I get every virtual client to do is I get them to send them a picture just of their posture, front, back, side. Um, and then I get them to send videos of some of their movements that I'm, you know, looking for. Some of them are like squats, toe touches, and we do it on the live call as well. But for me, it's just to get this this initial representation and it gives me talking points to say, hey, you know, you mentioned that you're getting a lot of right low back pain. Now, of course, static posture is not enough to, to go off of, right? But for me, it's also, it's still a very important objective measurement because static posture is a snapshot of posture because posture is dynamic. We're constantly self-adjusting our spine and different parts of the body because gravity and the ground are constantly trying to compress us or, you know, just crush us. And so we have to self-organize or correct ourselves to maintain those different pressures. So I can start to get a visual representation of where somebody may be, not producing the movement they should be. So for example, you know, again, like I had somebody today who they had an extremely high or hiked up right hip. They're feeling a lot of right low back pain. And to me, when I see a, a hip that's hiked up, I'm saying to myself, that person has a hard time producing internal rotation at their hip on that side, because what they need to do is they need to hike their hip and use muscles like multifidus or QL to try to reposition the pelvis in order to produce force into the ground. Another way of saying that is they're trying to arch their back and produce internal rotation at their back, which internal rotation is extension. So, 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 so they do it at their back in order again to manage gravity and manage the ground reaction forces. So for me, I think it's very important to get that initial data points because as we progress through sessions or through uh, training phases, we can go back and say, hey, look at where you started. Look at the pictures now. Look at how your body's changing. And we can also do that through intra, um, intra-session measurements. So I can assess... I can take an assessment measurement, like, and for me, I only really test about eight measurements. Um, 
from a, like a movement standpoint. And then what I do is through the session, I look at their two most limited measurements and I try to go after those measurements because if I go after those measurements, everything else will have a ripple effect of improving. But I just constantly, here's the exercise. I'm going to retest these two measurements. Here's the exercise. I'm going to retest these two measurements because when they leave with me, I want them to be doing those couple exercises, not 20, but maybe two or three to do at home. And then that becomes part of their warm up as well during the training session. And then what we can do is I get people to mark down the weight and the amount of reps they do. So the first block for me usually is, hey, let's try to do a 15 to 20 rep max. Let's just see where we are from a, from, from a weight standpoint. It's not like we're chasing heavy load. It's low enough that it's not going to create too much overstress of certain areas, but it gives us this kind of like measurement. It's like, okay, at, you know, 50 pounds or whatever, you're able to get to 12 reps and then that was it. Great. Now we can use that as a marker for progression. So I use intraset, um, but I'm constantly testing and retesting. And then, so for example, one of the ones that I, one of the measurements I really love is shoulder flexion. Shoulder flexion to me, and I just came out with this program, upper body program, which is all about or all surrounding the shoulder flexion and selecting exercises based on different levels of shoulder flexion. Yeah. Right. Shoulder flexion to me can tell me if somebody has internal and external rotation of their shoulder, if somebody has the ability to go overhead with their shoulder, if they have the ability to rotate their thorax that way, Hmm. the ability to gain scapular upward rotation, um, intra articular, you know, like, which is like inside the joint glenoid humeral movement. So Mm -hmm. all the joints around the shoulder, it provides me some indication. It also can tell me or provide information about can the neck turn that way as well? Because C5 to T5, they're very related in terms of their movement. And so if somebody can't get end range shoulder flexion, I know they're not going to be able to turn their neck that way. They're not going to be able to turn their rib cage that way as well. And so I use shoulder flexion and I create mm-hmm. programs based on that. So, so let's just kind of pursue that real quick. Cause I, I, yeah. I don't want people to get confused in the idea of like collect all these data points and then program for them and like a single data point. And I think this mm-hmm. one's easy to follow. Like I'm going to ask my client to just create shoulder flexion. Just show me what you can do. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that everybody here has worked with, um, you know, an older, older guy, played a lot of sports, had a couple injuries, blah, blah. And now if you can picture his straight arm will maybe cover it, the, you know, his chin and his nose, if you look at it from the side, right? Mm-hmm. So nowhere near to overhead position. No. So I probably should not program kettlebell snatches and, <laughs> you know, Olympic weightlifting snatches. And I'm not going to program barbell press, you know, or behind the neck military press, the dude cannot get in that position to start, right? Let alone with weight. I'm just saying he can't even get there to start. Exactly. So if that happens, we recognize A, there's a problem Mm -hmm. and B, there is a programming indication. There's a bucket he should go into. 
Exactly. So where do you go from there in your program? So I know you, so for the, why don't you throw out the website, by the way, where people can get this upper body program? Cause some people may be interested. Yeah. So, so, I, so on my website, resilientrehab.com. It's, it just launched today actually, which is May 21st. I'm not sure when this gets released, but yeah. it just got released, be released in a couple of weeks. It'll probably be sold out by then. <laughs> yeah. No, there's, there's unlimited supply. It's kind of, uh, there's only seven left by now. There's only seven left. Exactly. By now. Um, no, it's, uh, you know, it's, I'm going to talk about shoulder flexion right now, but you're yeah. going to see that in that program, each phase actually builds on different shoulder flexion ranges of motion. Mm-hmm. So I don't start people with overhead stuff. I start people with the assumption that they have really bad shoulder flexion and movements that they can do from a strength standpoint, from a power standpoint that doesn't go past um, their capabilities or their threshold, right? And so, right. so we're not me, hitting their I, red their red line every time. We're not hitting their painful range. And this exactly. is not, uh, when you're seeing this, you know, I think it's important. They they may have limitation with no pain. They may have limitation with pain. And we kind of got to tease out: is that from the movement? Is it exactly independent of that? Exactly. And that's why I have other measurements to back that up because, yeah. you know, one measurement is not going to give you all the information. The, the combination of all of them are going to provide information. Mm-hmm. And the way that I look at it is that, you know, the numbers and where they are in terms of like, let's say I have only 90 degrees of shoulder flexion. That provides me with the information about how the rib cage is able to move, how the shoulder blades able to move what position they're starting in. So for example, if I only have 90 degrees of shoulder flexion, Mm -hmm. that's happening because I'm already starting halfway into shoulder flexion, right? I kind of hit the ceiling early because I've already started. I'm not in a good starting position to allow for that full 180 degrees or 160 degrees. So for me, what I do, and because COVID caused me to do stuff a lot virtually and actually you know, thankfully, because it allowed me to adjust or made my assessment more effective. One of the things that I was finding was that when I was doing stuff virtually, it was very hard to get true measurements from people that weren't fake. And so what I mean by that is you have some people you test their shoulder flexion, you're like, wow, you've got full shoulder flexion. That's amazing. But then you do another test and, and you're thinking to yourself, how is this person allowed how's this person able to get 180 degrees? It's like, well, they're doing that by maybe arching their back on the table or arching their back when they're standing. So what I get everybody to do to, to solve this is lie down on their back with their knees slightly bent hands by their side with their palms up to the ceiling. In my model, the way that, you know, I think when there's a limitation of movement, that is somebody who is hitting internal rotation too early because internal rotation is compression. That's muscle stiffness, right? So if we look at shoulder flexion as kind of like this external rotation based X movement, the thing that inhibits that is more internal rotation. So what I get them to do is I get them to supinate their hand to bring them into the anatomical position. I put air quotes on, but um, the anatomical position, because the first 60 degrees of shoulder flexion is humeral movement. It's just the arm moving. The scapula doesn't even move. 
45 to 60 degrees. And that's all external rotation. But if I continue to go into external rotation without any internal, then my arm is just going to kind of go out to the side. It's going to abduct. So in order for me to go straight up, I need to have this balance of when I get to 60 degrees, my arm needs to relatively internally rotate. And then it needs to externally rotate again in order to go in a straight line. Right. So even though we're looking at the sagittal plane, there's always this balance of frontal and transverse. So what I'm doing is let's say I have somebody who has 60 degrees of shoulder flexion. That's it. By testing them with this supinated hand, I'm able to see that, okay, at 60 degrees of shoulder flexion, they start to turn their hand inward. They feel a lot of stiffness they should hypothetically be able to keep their hand supinated the whole time as their arm goes overhead. That to me is full shoulder flexion. If they only get to 60 degrees and they feel stiffness and, and stuff like that, then I'm not going to give them something at 90 degrees of shoulder flexion. I can't give them a barbell bench press that locks them into 90. They don't have the space to do that. In order to achieve that, they're going to shrug their shoulders. They're going to round their shoulders to try to get that movement. And then they get neck pain. They get shoulder impingement stuff going on. They, get, they feel pain in the front of their shoulder and all that right. stuff. And so for me, what I do is I program stuff maybe at about 45 degrees of shoulder flexion to start. So from a bench press perspective, let's just say, maybe I get them to do a decline press to start because now they're reaching lower at basically like this nipple level, essentially, which is more 45 degrees of shoulder flexion. Or I do activities like that. Like maybe I do, you know, high to low cable presses. Maybe I do um, mm -hmm. low to high rows, like stuff where my arm is below 60 degrees of shoulder flexion. Right. And now I'm not working at 60 because I want to have a little bit of a buffer because just in case they cheat, or they compensate, they may kind of get themselves to that 60 degrees of shoulder flexion. Um, so I give them like a 20 to 15 degree buffer. And then from there, they're able to, you know, hopefully when I see them for assessment, I'm able to improve that within two or three exercises. Yeah. And then my strength. Do you yeah. know Eric Cressy or you know of him? Yep. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading that guy's prolific in his writing, right? And I remember he yeah. wrote a blog about the idea of, you know, a lot of, um, works with a lot of pitchers and they're taught a lot of scapular retraction exercise and, oh, this will keep you healthy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, uh, he, he said he had a pitcher come in one time. The guy's like, yeah, I just, you know, I'm trying to get that, that shoulder retraction, blah, blah, blah. And Eric has him take his shirt off to look. And he said like, this guy's scaps are damn near kissing up, up next to his spinous processes. Like, yeah, you need retraction. Like, you know, I need to eat more ice cream. Like you do not ever need to eat. Yeah. You know, I do you not ever need to do any more shoulder track. Your shoulders are fully retracted. Yeah. But to your point is like, just understanding like, where are we starting with? Let's look at this is yeah. so funny. And then, you know, so many people think about, Oh, I, I like using this tool. I like this tool or, uh, you know, landmine, the landmine is like, uh, Ben Bruno has done his best to make that thing as popular as possible. Yeah. Um, only works with hot women and only puts them on the landmine, which is a great combination. <laughs> if you want to make something famous, by the way, exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Well, that's yeah. you know Kate what? Upton's using one end of it and, and people will listen, but 
Exactly. Well, you know, for me, it's like, and I think the biggest point across that I want to get is that exercise is secondary, right? Exercise is the method in order to achieve the goal. And the goal is whatever that person's goal is. If that person is, Hey, I want to lift heavy weights. Like, great. But what is your, like you need as a professional, you need to do that without hurting them. Mm-hmm. And in or and this is what I'm saying here is find out what range you can play with. If you've only got 60 degrees of shoulder flexion, you should not be pressing overhead. Oh, you how know? dare you? Yeah, you know, it's like the the goal for you is hey, I, you know, they come to you like I want a barbell back squat. Great. Well, hey, let's let's get them there. Right? They may not be able to get them there. It's a process, but it's. It's funny. I mean, this sounds dumb, but it's no different than like in, in the treatment world, you know, you'll have people like, all right, uh, you know, Alex's shoulder is, uh, or Alex's T-spine is hypermobile. Yeah. Cool. What should we do? Adjust it. All right. Alex's yeah. T-spine is hypomobile. What should we do it? Adjust it. And it's like, slow down champ. Like yeah, WD-40 yeah. works when things don't move and you want it to move. Duct tape works in, and it's like, we can't have the same solution come in. And I like what you're saying. Like exercise is the intervention. When does somebody need more shoulder retraction exercises? When they probably lack shoulder retraction or you just want to do a little bit to maintain. When do they need overhead pressing exercise? When they can't get, you know, when they don't have good overhead pressing, but you don't start out there. You start out with the assessment, right? And that's how you move. Yeah. This is... This totally cha- I, I'm an instructor for the SFMA and uh, with the functional movement systems and, and that yeah. whole just categorizing like what's the goal of this treatment? What's the yeah. movement of this? As dumb as it sounds, such a basic idea and it completely revolutionized my clinical thinking. It is. SFMA, honestly, I actually really um, enjoy SFMA. I really like their idea of like breaking out where, you know, you look at the squat and then you're like, okay, let's tease this out. Let's figure out what's going on with the squat. Let's take a look at hip flexion. Let's take a look, or sorry, short, yeah, hip flexion and all these other things to really tease out and figure it out. Um, for me, it's like exactly like manual therapy has its place, right? But I think what some people do is you have spectrums. You have people who just do manual therapy and that's it. The problem is, is you're not teaching the body how to do that movement itself. And that's really what you need to do. So what you can do is maybe so you assess them and then provide an exercise strategy see what happens retest them some people they need a manual intervention to get some help because they just can't they've been in this position for so long that they just need that nudge in the right direction and then you get them to do the exercise again it's like okay great now it worked okay awesome so it needs to be a, a dynamic interplay between them and I understand people have cut time constraints, 15 minutes, but I always give people one or two exercises to do at home that I think is really going to benefit them the next time I see them. Because if somebody's got 45 degrees of shoulder flexion, I want them coming in the next time at 90 so that yeah. we can have more, more fun. Well, the other thing about like when people say, oh, I have time constraints is like, there is nothing that, so if you have time constraints, you got to number one, stop wasting good time. Yeah. And then find out what exactly to do with your with the time remaining. Well, one of the big wastes is like if you're doing a bunch of treatments or interventions in places that really don't matter, like mm-hmm. it doesn't feed the client's goal and it doesn't help us improve our movement. Yeah. You have to assess to get to the point where you can eliminate that stuff reliably. Because I don't want to say like, 
you know, like I, I'm sure you've had this, like people, I'm, let me try and think. So with shoulders, yeah, I have so many people that I'll see like in the clinic, uh, you go to a clinic and you'll see like some physical therapist or chiropractor working on internal rotation. I mean, they're jamming in there. Yeah. Patients like eyeballs are crying, you know, like it's not comfortable to have internal rotation worked on and they're jamming in there. And then you test them and like, I've tested them on the table, like lay, you know, prone and let me check your internal rotation. I'm like you have 65 healthy degrees here. What, what are we doing? Yeah. It's like, that's a total waste of time. It's uncomfortable for the patients, uncomfortable for the provider. The provider's thumb now smells like deodorant for the rest of the day. Like when you're yeah. eating sandwiches, yeah. eliminate that. And a miraculously you'll have enough time to do these other things you want to do, you know? Exactly. Well, you know, it's funny because I was working at this clinic and that was at, it was like, you know, and I know Eric Cressy, for example, he's, he's a guy who's like, you know, maybe we should stop doing like sleeper stretches and stuff like that to improve internal rotation. And if anybody doesn't, doesn't know what that is, essentially you're just taking the arm and you're just trying to crank internal rotation. You're forcing it. And so I was working at a clinic and people were doing that or they were, again, like jamming at the subscapularis or something like that, right? To try to get that internal rotation and, uh, or all these other like supraspinatus and infraspinatus. And I'm going in there and I'm just like, hey, reach your arm at 90 degrees. Let's do a couple breaths and then boom, internal rotation comes. And I'm like, hey, let's do something else instead. Let's maybe do a chest press and you're, or a push-up. And you're going to see, you're going to regain that internal rotation. And then now you're like, okay, well, now I don't have to focus on that. But so that got cleared up, but this still didn't get cleared up. So then you did a manual intervention and you're like, okay, well, this exercise worked. Now that I've done this manual intervention, let's try this exercise as well. And then you give those two for homework at home. And then when they come into the gym, for example, if you're a trainer, you can still do that. You can still give them exercise to do at home. Whether they're going to do it or not, I don't know. But you put in their warm up too. It's like, hey, you see how much? Yeah. No, I was just going to make the point. When people yeah. are like, oh, yeah, so and so, they're not really good about doing your exercises. Give them an exercise dramatically changes their performance. You'll be amazed at how often they'll do it. I mean, exactly. you'll go from like, I, I can't get them to do one set of 12 to the guy's w- uh, wife complaining. The guy's demonstrating stupid exercise at parties and stuff. I don't know what you, you know, <laughs> yeah. he thinks it's black magic or something. It's like, oh. exactly. You know, it's so funny. Cause I, I was, uh, it's pre COVID a couple years ago, I was driving down the street and I saw one of my clients on the uh, side of the street. And one thing I get them to do is I teach them like about rib cage position. Like, okay, well, if your ribs are flared up, that's not the best strategy. Maybe we should exhale all the air, bring those ribs down, and then do movements. And I gave him just like this cue. And I see him standing on the street and he just takes his hand on his ribs. He's like, quickly exhales and just drops his ribs. And, right? and because he notices <laughs> the tear difference. ran out of your eyes. You're driving to the exactly. back. <laughs> yeah. I rolled down my window. I'm like, I'm very proud of you. <laughs> but, but that's exactly right. Like what I always do is I, I write down the numbers and I show them like, Hey, remember this amount of shoulder flexion you have. Okay. Let's do this one thing. Now let's retest it. See how much that improves. They're like, Oh yeah. Like it actually feels much better. Great. You're going to do that every day at home until I see you next in the next you know couple days or whatever. And we're going to keep on building on that. It's going to be in every single one of your warmups. And then we're going to do exercises that reinforce that. The whole goal of that is to improve mobility so that when you train them and you superimpose the strength that they are able to use it so they don't lose it and they're able to build resiliency on top of that, right? 
yeah, I like the term resiliency. And one other thought I just had uh, is that, you know, promoting resiliency is a lot easier. And obviously everybody listening to this, one of the attractive things about interviewing Alex is like his whole business has the word resilient in it, which is yeah. inspiring, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's essentially saying you're not broken rehab.com or something. <laughs> exactly. Well, but, um, you know, when you're promoting resiliency, if you can thin slice down a very complex joint like the shoulder or like the hip to the one motion that's really causing the problem, a lot of patients grab onto that and say, okay, so you're, you know, you're saying, so you're saying as long as I do X, Y, and Z with my shoulder, I shouldn't have that much pain. You're like, yeah, that's it. And then we're just going to work to get that solved. But if they feel like, oh, my entire right shoulder is gorked and I'll never be able to move ever. It's like, okay, then it's hard to get that resilient belief if you think like the entire joints smoked. Well, that's just it. And that's why I always, if it's a shoulder issue, I always, you know, teach clients about the rib cage. And I'm just, and and my analogy always is, is, the rib cage and the spine are like the, the, like the trunk of a tree, right? And then the arms and the legs are branches, mm-hmm. right? So like, like, like the pelvis and the rib cage are the trunk and the arms and legs are branches. So if the trunk isn't in a good position, the tree's going to fall. And so the branches are not going to, you know, function very well, so to say, right? So we need to restore the rib cage position. That's then going to influence the shoulder. Instead of just narrowing in on the shoulder, it's like, even the shoulder flexions, like I'm not looking at the shoulder necessarily. I'm looking at the integration of the shoulder with the rib cage, with the clavicle, with the spine, with the scapula, right? Like I'm looking at all of those together with the humerus, with the wrist, with the, with the forearm, like all of that is telling that shoulder flexion is telling me all of that. And so it's not just one thing, but it's, let's look at the rib cage because that's going to be the easiest thing to influence. And it's going to, makes sense to them because if I arch my back, you can see how my shoulders turn backwards or my sockets turn backwards and my shoulder blades come together. And so they feel that. And then I'm like, okay, what if I do this? What if I get you to exhale all the air and reach? You know, like, how does that feel? And now, even though I'm saying that, like, especially people who are strong, I work with a lot of power lifters as well. Like, I don't get them to just land their back and breathe. That's not what I get them to do. But to provide them with a context for a second saying, Hey, see how that feels. Okay. Every single exercise we do, that's how you should feel from a rib cage perspective. When you're squatting, when you're pressing, when you're deadlifting, everything, that is your starting position. That's how we get the tree trunk stable. So the branches are able to do what they need to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. uh, Real quick. I got to do a live read for our sponsor of this program, which is clinic gym connect. We're going to keep it short though, because uh, I forgot to do this earlier. So if you're interested in text messaging with your patients and following up with them the best you know how, then check out clinicgymconnect.com. That's clinicgymconnect.com. It works awesome. It's it's super sweet. Uh, we designed it to work for clinics and gyms. So you should check it out. That's the whole live read. All right. Is it? Alex, last question for you. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, we got to wrap this up, but I know that you have a lot, you have other education. So we talked a little bit about, you have this upper body program, programming, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what you want to say, programming that you released today as we're speaking. Yeah. But what other education do you have on resilient, uh, is it resilientrehab.com? Yeah, resilientrehab.com. And so, um, so ever since COVID started, I wasn't able to work with people virtually or um, in person. And so a lot of my friends and 
and people uh, really pushed me to do some mentorship and start to share my, you know, some of the stuff that I do, some of the principles that I work on uh, with my personal clients and some things I've got some success with. And uh, um, so I started Evolve Mentorship, which is which basically provides you with like, it's like an eight week mentorship that goes into everything from assessment, from how I look at the body, how I look at the foot, how that interacts with gait and breathing. Um, and then how I program based on the assessment and based on some of these postural representations that I commonly see. And I even break down some compensations into three or four different compensations you're commonly going to see that influence the entire system. So I've got the Evolve Mentorship. Um, and then from there, like if you do Evolve Mentorship, I also have like a continuing education program called mm -hmm. The Vault. Um, where people, where we just do like bi-weekly live calls and we just kind of like go into stuff. Yeah. Um, and then I've got a, a webinar on there as well called Principles of Exercise Selection, which essentially just start talking about what is happening with these exercises. What's the difference between a rear foot elevated split squat and a front foot elevated split squat? How can we use that to strategically improve mm -hmm. performance, improve mobility, and improve resilience? And, you know, for all the listeners who are listening, I'm not just a rehab person. I'm not just a trainer. I'm not just an exercise physiologist. Like I'm a combination of all of them. I like to look at the body as a whole, identify where somebody's not able to move, and then load, intensity, volume. Those are just all variables that I can manipulate in order to drive the movement that I want to because higher volume increases movement options to a certain extent higher weight will decrease movement options. And both of them are good at different times. And that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying, hey, we need to treat everybody like they're broken. It's like, no, how do we make these people resilient? We do it by you know, assessing properly, having assessment measurements that we constantly reassess and retest, and we progress our exercise selection mm -hmm. based on that progression of assessment. And that's what awesome. I'm all about. Okay. So that's at uh, resilientrehab.com. Resilientrehab.com. And I'm also on Instagram at alex.effer. Um, and I post things every day. So E-F-F-E-R, uh, right? Yeah, E-F-F-E-R. Nice. All right. Yeah. Well, this has been a pleasure, Alex. I love talking about data points and, and just doing simple assessments and the amount of amazing gold you can kind of dig out of them, you know? Yeah. So I appreciate you, you uh, sharing that with us. On behalf of Alex Effer, this is Dr. Josh Satterley saying, go out there, maximize your license, and live the life you dream of. Thanks a lot, Alex. Thanks, Josh. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hey, I want to let you know that this episode was brought to you by ClinicGymConnect.com. Clinic Gym Connect is our new, exciting communication software that I think will revolutionize your practice, blow your customers away with amazing customer service, and allow you to grow by offering the solutions that your office offers. So if you want to check out more, just go to clinicgymconnect.com. Again, that's clinicgymconnect.com and check it out there. Thanks. Thanks.